God has no favorites. You know, one of the facts of life is that it's easier to learn something new than to unlearn something you already know. Uh, I like playing squash. I've played squash for a number of years. I'm not really good, but I really enjoy playing. And a few years ago, a friend of mine said, hey, I know a guy who's a squash coach, and he's offered to do some sessions for us at a discount price. Let's take them. So anyway, we went along, met this guy, and he said, well, I'm just going to watch you guys hit a little bit, and then I'll give some feedback. So we got on the court, and of course, you're trying to impress, right? So I thought I was doing pretty well. Got off, big smile on the phone, like, okay, what have you got for me? And he goes, you've got so many bad habits. And he's like, we need, you need to unlearn a whole lot of bad things before you can even begin to improve. And there's an element of truth for us as Christians that there are certain scruples that we might unconsciously hold. And by scruples, I mean it's an old English word, but it's basically these inner religious convictions and traditions that we can pick up along the way. And we might need to unlearn these traditions. You know, I often find meeting people who have come from a very, very conservative conservative religious home, that they've picked up some weird uh, scruples. Uh, we met a girl in our community group when we were in Hong Kong, and she had come out of the Seventh-day Adventist church, and she had been with us for a number of years already, but she still couldn't drink coffee. She had been told that drinking coffee was wrong and it was bad, and she couldn't bring herself to drink coffee. I don't know how that would work in Australia, because everybody drinks coffee in Australia, but she just couldn't bring herself to drink coffee. Now, I think Simon Peter grew up in a strong Jewish home where he had picked up some of these scruples, these traditions, these laws which were passed down to him. And there were two particularly that he held very dear and he had, he had observed faithfully his whole life. Uh, and one of them was the food he ate, the kind of food he ate. He was... Jewish, and according to the Torah, there was food that was clean, and there was food that was unclean. And, and part of the food that was unclean was bacon and ham. Can you imagine living without bacon and ham? Dude, that reminds me of a story where there was this, this gathering of all religious leaders, and they had, you know, they had a Catholic priest and a Jewish rabbi, and they were sitting next to each other, uh, and there were some refreshments in front of them, and the Catholic priest leans over to the Jewish rabbi and he says, I don't suppose I can offer you a ham sandwich. And the Jewish rabbi, being very quick, said, I'll have one at your wedding. Now, if you, you hear that. Anyway, another scruple that, that Simon Peter picked up was the homes that he went into, certain kind of people that he, he associated with. You see, he would quite happily walk into a Jewish home, no problem doing that. But he would never enter a Gentile home. He was Jewish, that was fine, but he would never walk into a Gentile home. And that might sound a little bit strange to us, a little bit difficult to comprehend, but for me, growing up in South Africa, that is a very real thing. You see, for me, when I was growing up, it was still under the apartheid system in South Africa. For those of you who don't know what that is, that is actually a political and legal 
thing where they separate people based on their race and ethnicity. And as a boy growing up in South Africa, I can remember going to school where it was only white kids. I can remember going to the beach and there was this big sign that said, whites only. And what it does in your heart is it makes you feel special, that you somehow you get these special privileges and other people don't. But then uh, as a family, we moved to a small town and I became really good friends uh, with some boys in my class and their dad was a banana farmer and he was also a lay Methodist preacher. Uh, and I just spent all my weekends on the farm. And on the farm, our best friends were the farm laborers' kids. We did everything together. We played together, ate together. And I, I found out these, they're no different to us. There's no difference between us. In fact, actually, they're a lot better at soccer than we are. And I can remember having this thought as a 10-year-old. And I was in religious education class, RE. And I remember putting up my hand and asking the teacher, I said, why aren't blacks allowed in our school? They are fantastic soccer players. That was my question. And I remember his answer was this. He said, they have their schools and we have ours. They're different. That is what he said. And that was exactly how Simon Peter felt about the Gentiles. They were different. Now, at that time, God had actually put that law in place. He had said the Jewish people are to separate themselves. They are to be holy unto God, separated as God's people. But now God was going to bring Simon Peter to a place where he was going to redraw those lines. Now, when it comes to to redrawing the lines of, of some scruples that we hold. It's a very difficult thing. And we must remember to be tender and sensitive towards one another. The Bible tells us to bear in mind the weaker brother or sister's conscience. We don't, we don't shove the freedom that we have in Christ in someone else's face. We do it with gentleness and kindness. You see, Simon Peter in this passage, he's going to have to unlearn some of these customs that he had held so dearly. And it was hard for him, and yet God was very tender with him. So let's see how God does that. But first, a question for all of us. What scruples do you hold on to? You see, most of us think that we don't have them. Me? Oh, I don't, I, don't have any, I don't have any religious scruples. But maybe there are certain things that we do or believe that helps us look down on others, that actually they've got no biblical basis for, but they're, they're inside us, they're what we see. Uh, the other day, as, as a staff team, we were having lunch, and this conversation about tattoos came up. Now, to be honest with you, I have or had a religious scruple about tattoos, right? I just, it's not my thing. But more than that, I think maybe it's from living in Asia a long time when tattoos were often associated with gangs and stuff. I just developed this thing inside me, oh, Christians shouldn't do that kind of thing. And God had to deal with me. And he had to show me, you've got no biblical basis for that. 
So if you come up to me and you flash your tattoo, I might not say, ooh, ah. But I promise you this, I won't look down on you either. Because God had to deal with that in me. And as we look at Peter, God's already at work in him. Peter's already changing. I don't know about you, but I kind of wish God would just change us all in one go. Right? Don't you wish that God would just kind of zap you and you would be perfect, you would always think the right thing, you would always do the right thing. But yet God is tender and kind and he works in us in a slow and gentle way as he molds us into the image of his son. You see, Peter is now as far from his birthplace as he's ever been. He's in this little city called Joppa. And he's staying in a home that he kind of has some doubts about. Right? It's a, it's a Jewish home, but the Jew living in that home kind of has an unorthodox occupation. Because you see, this Jew, also a Simon, was a tanner. And that meant that his house was full of blood and animal skins and it would have stank. And Peter's kind of taken the step that he's willing to be in that place. But it's probably not such a great place to pray inside. So Peter goes up uh, at the sixth hour and that's just the Jewish way of of saying time. The the, the Jewish day began at 6 a.m. So, or at sunrise. So, the six hours, lunchtime, 12 p.m. Peter's hungry. He goes up to pray. He's on the rooftop. And he's praying, and he has, it says he falls into this trance, or he sees this vision. Now, a vision is like a dream, but you're awake. So quite terrifying, right? And, so, and this is what Simon says. He saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. So there you go, God invented the first flat screen TV. You know, we tend to think, oh man, so clever, he thought of it first. No, God thought of it first. And the very first show that he puts on is a nature documentary. Uh, I just wonder if it was like a David Attenborough voiceover. But that's what Simon Peter's seeing. He's seeing all these kind of animals and reptiles and birds. And then out of this is this voice that comes out that says, rise. Peter, it's personal, it's directed at him. It says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. What a challenge to his deeply held Jewish customs. And Peter, of course, says, yes, Lord. No, Peter goes, by no means. Now, I feel like that's a little bit of a soft translation because the Greek word is actually a very strong negative. It's this word, meganoita which means, no way, not on my watch, I'm not touching that food. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had a a vision that was as vivid as that, and a voice told me to do something, I'd probably do it. But not Peter, right? Peter just, sort of the old Peter comes out, the reed. The same Peter that when Jesus had a, a towel and a bowl and said, Peter, let me wash your feet. Peter said, no ways, Lord. You're not washing my feet. That same Peter comes back. And I don't know, but for me, in a weird way, I kind of find that comforting and encouraging. That even Peter, even Peter had to live with the old Peter. That sometimes the flesh was still there. The flesh would rise up. And show itself. And Peter's reaction is, no way am I eating that. Now, I can kind of relate to Peter. 
because uh, a few years ago, actually many years ago, in South Africa, uh, our community group did a mission trip to Swaziland. And it was great. We arrived in Swaziland, and uh, we, we met a whole lot of the leaders, and it was great. And then they brought out some food for us. And they said, we, would, we, we really want to treat you, and we're going to give you something called a mapani worm. So this is a mapani worm. Delicious, right? That's what you were thinking. Now, this is a dish of mapani worms. It's got tomato in there. must be lovely. But there you are in front of everyone, and they say, eat. And I ate. Now, they say mapani worms are very nutritious, but I will say this. It tasted exactly like it looks. You know, uh, if, you, if you chat to missionaries, especially missionaries in the third world, I love hearing stories about missionaries. I always got these amazing stories. But at some point, the conversation will always go to food and the weird things that they've had to eat. Now, if you talk to, to missionaries who, who minister to the Bedouins, they will tell you, oh, my goodness, the Bedouins, they are known for their hospitality. They, the one way to make you feel special is they invite you in and they feed you and they look after you. But... To really make you feel special, if you're the VIP guest, they've got this delicacy that they love sharing with you. And it's really, really precious to them. And on every meal that they have with it, there's only two. There's only two. And if they give it to you, you know that they care about you and they want you to eat it. And that delicacy is a sheep or a goat's eye. Now, I could have put a picture up, but it probably would have grossed everyone out, right? But imagine you're that person. You're ministering to the Bedouins. They think you're special. They've invited you in for a meal. And then comes this moment where they hand you the sheep's eye. And you can imagine what happens when you bite into a sheep's eye, right? And they're all looking at you, and they go, eat. Imagine that feeling. That's exactly what Simon Peter's feeling. Like, no way. No way am I eating that. You know, it's, it's amazing that, that this happened three times. Three times, the same vision, the same voice happens to Peter. Peter always seemed to do the things in threes, right? He denied Jesus three times. Three times, Jesus asked him, do you love me? Three times, Jesus is having to say to Peter, Peter, don't contradict me. Don't say never. In verse 17, it tells us Peter comes out of this trance, out of this vision, and it says he was inwardly perplexed to what it might mean. Have you ever felt inwardly perplexed and confused as to what God is saying? I've felt that way. Well, if you have, you're in good company, because Simon Peter felt the same way too. And sometimes we just need to be patient as God makes things clear to us. You see, what Peter didn't know at that moment, that God wasn't simply changing his diet. He was changing his entire way of thinking and being. And God does that to us. We can't expect to come to God and expect that he's not going to challenge us. Because he loves you. He wants to change you and he wants to mold you into the image of his son. You see, and right as Peter's pondering this, what does God mean by all this? He hears this knock on the door, and it's the Gentiles, the Romans, who are strangely looking for Simon Peter, 
And they know exactly where he is because God has told them exactly where Simon Peter is. Now, you notice that Simon Peter is already softening. He's already changing, right? Normally, he wouldn't have willingly gone with the Gentiles. This time, the Spirit only has to tell him once, Peter, it's okay, go with them. And he obeys. Doesn't have to say it three times, just once. So Peter is changing. And here we meet Cornelius the Gentile. Now, this is what it says about Cornelius. Uh, if you've got your Bibles uh, at the beginning of chapter 10, we didn't read this, but verse 1 and 2 says this about Cornelius. It says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So Caesarea is just northwest of Jerusalem, and it's about 40 kilometers north of Joppa. Uh, and at this time, Caesarea was the Roman capital of Judea. And that is the city where Cornelius lives. Now, Cornelius is this interesting character because he's a Gentile, but he's been surrounded by the pagan religions of the Roman Empire. Now, the Romans had many gods, and whenever they conquered a nation, they would just take that god that that nation worshipped, and they would just add it to the pantheon. Well, they're like, okay, let's just, uh, let's just you know, put one in there. What's another god? One must be right. Shotgun approach. You know, the more gods we have, the better. But Cornelius looked at this, and he goes, that's not the right way. He just saw in it these religious, empty rituals. And yet, when he looked at Judaism, he saw this order and this, this beauty about them that they worshiped the one true God with reverence and awe. <clears throat> and Cornelius had, had turned to the Jewish God in hope that he could find salvation. You see, Cornelius was as probably as close to Judaism as you could get without becoming a proselyte. He was known as a God-fearer. Now, there were many God-fearers like him in the ancient world. Uh, the interesting thing about Cornelius is that you look at his life. He's a very religious person, right? He's doing all the right things outwardly. He's fasting. He's praying. He was giving generously to poor people. He was even looking after Jewish people. The nation of, of Israel thought well of him. Right, The rest of the Roman soldiers, they were mistreating the Jews, taking advantage of them. And here you have Cornelius, he's actually caring about them. I mean, this guy, he's the model of religious respectability. Like, he's the kind of guy every mother hopes uh, her daughter will bring home. And yet... He's not saved. He doesn't know Jesus personally. And you can see here the difference between Cornelius and many religious people today is that Cornelius knew deep down that this, this religious devotion that he had was not able to save him. He was not able to make him right with God. But I find religious people today, they, they're very satisfied that their character and their good works are the things that will get them right with God. 
And they don't have a concept of their own sin or God's grace that they so desperately need. But Cornelius, he, he knows that, that this is the way that the Jews do worship the one true God, but he also knows that he's not saved. And he cries out to God, show me the way of salvation. Now God loves answering a prayer like that. This is what it says in Acts 11. As he's trying to explain the situation, it says this. And he told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. Amazing how God works, right? He takes Jewish, Jewish Peter, Gentile Cornelius, Two people who were so far apart, who, who were both had these religious scruples about each other. they worlds apart. They don't speak to each other. But in this amazing act, God brings them both together. Right? In this moment, he deals with Peter's religious scruples. But at the same time, he's going to use Peter to deal with Cornelius' need for salvation. You know, often when we think we're called to to preach the gospel to others, we, we think, well, you know what, I've got to wait until I know more. I've got to wait until I've, I'm mature in Christ and, I've, and I'm growing in Christ. What we see here is that the same things happen at the same time. If you want to grow up as a disciple of Christ, you share him with others. You know, I can remember a season in my life where I was, I, I, I was going through that stage where I was growing and then suddenly I just felt dry. I don't know if it's ever happened to you. It's like it, the prayer life feels empty, just not going. And I, I went to speak to an older believer, and I said to him, hey, I'm, I'm just feeling dry, like, you know, heaven's a brass bell, nothing's going through. And he said to me, when was the last time you shared your faith? And I said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm feeling dry, not close to God. He says, no, no, when was the last time you shared your faith? And I go, why? He goes, because when you share your faith, Jesus will become very real to you. So a question for us. When was the last time you shared your faith? See, finally, Peter arrives in Caesarea, and Cornelius, he is ready for them. He shows such faith in God that he's brought his whole household, his relatives, they're all waiting there. I mean, Peter... He's a witness and an evangelist, and he's not even a believer yet. But Cornelius also had some weird ideas, right? Uh, he had been brought up in the Roman world of these pagan gods, and there were so many gods, and anyone could be a god. And when Peter comes in, and Peter is God's man, Cornelius reacts by falling at his feet and worshipping Peter. Now, can you imagine... What a temptation it was for Peter at this moment. You see, the Romans occupied Israel. They oppressed Jewish people. And here he has one of the Romans, a centurion who's prepared to worship him. I mean, you can just imagine Peter thinking, oh, just a little slice of the glory. Just let, me, just let me enjoy this moment a little bit. But we can see how much Peter has grown. 
how much he understands who Jesus is as he understands that actually all the glory belongs to God. And he says to Cornelius, stand up. I'm just a man. There's nothing special about me. I'm just a man. Now, we might think this kind of thinking only belongs to the ancient world, but we do this all the time. Our culture wants to make gods out of people. We want to elevate people to this godlike status. We, we do it with our film stars, with our pop stars. And dare I say it, we even do it with our Christian celebrities. This attempt to make someone more than a person, right? Elevate them to this godlike status. It's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing for them, and it's a dangerous thing for us. You see, there's only one God. There's only one God, and He deserves all the praise, all the glory. No man, only Him. David Foster Wallace, uh, he was a very well-known author. He, he wasn't a believer, he wasn't a Christian, but he wrestled with things, and he looked at life, and he said this. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not Worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And that's true. Everybody worships something. You follow them around and you will see what they worship. And, and you look at Cornelius. Cornelius is tempted to worship man. And Peter points him, no, worship God. Worship God because he is deserving of all worship. You see, Peter is very honest with Cornelius and he tells Cornelius, listen, I, I shouldn't even be associating with you guys. I, I'm a Jew and you're a Gentile. But God has done this amazing thing, this wonderful thing that he's shown me that at the cross, the cross is not just a place where I can be reconciled with God, but actually I'm now reconciled with you. That, that we are now brothers in Christ because you've been reconciled with the cross as well. You see, the Jews belong to God as much as the Gentiles do. That's the mystery of the gospel. Up until this moment, Peter had thought God only revealed himself to the Jews. He spoke to the Jews, through the Jews, through the Jewish prophets. But now he's going to find out through Cornelius that God is speaking to the Gentiles. God spoke to Cornelius, pointed him to Peter, and then he uses Peter to tell Cornelius Salvation is of the Jews, but it is for everyone. See, now Peter gets this moment where he realizes he sees God's in hand in all of this. He understands what he's been called to. He understands exactly what that big screen vision was all about. That in this moment, Peter the Jew is called to proclaim the gospel to Gentiles too. You see, Peter is preaching to himself as much as he's preaching to Cornelius when he says, I understand that God shows no partiality. He has no favorites. God doesn't consider any person better than any other person. God doesn't look at your social status. He doesn't look at what country you're from. He doesn't look at what ethnicity you are. He doesn't look at what language you speak. He doesn't look at how educated you are. God has no favorites. But you know, he does see something in Cornelius that is distinct. Do you notice what it is? 
He says, Cornelius feared God. Now, in my experience, I find talking to people who have something of the fear of God, that they are more ready for the gospel. You find people who who mock God, they laugh at any notion of God, they have no interest in godly things, they're actually very difficult to, to reach. Not impossible, but difficult. But when you meet someone who has this this fear of God, that they know that that God is a creator, they look at creation and they go, it must be ordered. There's intelligent design behind all this. That God must be holy and righteous. I find those people are, are more open to the gospel. So look for people from every nation who fear God who have something of the fear of God in their lives. You see, Peter, that day, he unlearned so much. He laid down his religious scruples. You know, he he learned the most unlikely thing. The, The people that he never thought would come close to God, the people that he thought God actually held far away, they would never make good followers of Jesus. Actually, he finds out that God has welcomed them in. He realized that God has no favorites. He has a thought that God doesn't like you any better than anyone else. Actually, you're all his favorites. You're all his favorites. You see, Peter goes on to explain the gospel. And he says, listen, you have to understand that the gospel is about peace. And that peace that you're looking for is only found in Christ Jesus. Not only for the Jews, but for everyone. You have to understand, Cornelius, that there is this hostility, this this war between us and God. Because we want to define good and evil for ourselves. We, We want to satisfy our desires in our way. He says, Cornelius, you have to understand that that Jesus came and he broke down that wall of hostility between us and him. He broke that down so there can be now peace with him. And notice when Peter's talking about the gospel, he keeps the focus on Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes the difference, right? If we focus on anything else, we lose what the gospel is about. If we say, come join the church, we have lots of fun here, we play lots of games, we enjoy each other's company, we're a really good social club, that's not the gospel. If we say, hey, come join our church, we we do lots of good things, uh, you know, we, we, we feel really good about ourselves, that's not the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus, the rock, the author of our faith. You see, Peter gives all his attention to Jesus. He talks about Jesus' life. Now, can I encourage you, if you're explaining the gospel to someone, just explain who Jesus was, what he did. He was factually a human being. He was alive. He walked the earth. And then explain that, that he did good. He taught people how to love one another, really love one another, how to, what that looks like. He healed people. He did these miraculous things. And there were, there were hundreds of witnesses to this. 
And there was nothing in Jesus' life that deserved death. Nothing. He was perfectly good all the time. He was perfectly righteous all the time. He was perfectly just all the time. And yet, the people couldn't stand him. The religious leaders couldn't stand him. And they, they put him to death. Not just any death, but the worst kind of death you can imagine. The death of a criminal. The cross was designed to shame you in every way it could. But it was also a painful death that involved nails going through your hands and feet. It was a death of pain and suffering and disgrace. And they did this thinking they could get rid of him. We don't want to be reminded of God. We don't want to be reminded of goodness. And then you get these two words. But God. Don't you love those two words? They make the difference. Those make the difference. But God raised him on the third day. He proved, right, that he was alive. And he he appeared to people that God had chosen as witnesses. He was a, a very real person after his resurrection. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a figment of the imagination. He ate and he drank with people. See, that's the gospel. That's the gospel that Jesus died and rose again. But there's another part of the gospel that is often missed. And that's that God has appointed Jesus to be judge. You see, the truth is, Jesus is going to judge mankind. One day, all of us will stand before him and give account of our lives. We'll all die, and we all stand before him, and he knows everything about us. Everything about us. There's nothing that we can't hide from him. And you will not have your friends next to you that day putting in a good word for you. You will not have your family that day trying to help out. It'll be you and him, and he sees straight into your heart. He sees everything. He sees the hidden things. Now, if that's true, If that's true, I cannot stand as I am before a holy God and say I'm innocent. I can't. But, but, but God. But God comes, Jesus comes, and he says, believe that I died for you. That on that cross, I took your sin, but I gave you my perfection. I gave you my righteousness so that now you can stand before a holy God, a holy judge. And what he will see, he will see Jesus' righteousness. He will see Jesus' perfection. See, we can stand before the judge with joy, with peace, because it's the judge himself who's paid the price for us to go free. And that means that this day where we stand before him is a day that we who've put our trust in him look forward to. We have no shame, no guilt, because actually we are clothed with his righteousness. It's a day that we long for, not a day that we're afraid of. That's why we sing the songs we do. That's why we should be the most joyous people on the planet. That's why we should be filled with thanksgiving and praise. Because when we come together and we worship as God's people, we're remembering what he's done for us. We're remembering his victory for you, for me. And it doesn't matter what's going on in your life. That is the truth. What a wonderful truth that is. This is what it says in Romans 10. 
For Scripture says, everyone, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. There's no difference in Christ Jesus. There's no Jew, there's no Gentile, there's no slave, there's no free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, if you were dragged along today by a friend or, or maybe a relative, or you just heard that there's some good coffee, which by the way, the coffee is good. But if you're here for that reason, and it might be one of your first experiences in church or how many times you've been here, but you're really unsure about this whole Jesus thing. But there's this something of the fear of God in your life. You realize that life isn't just this cosmic accident. It's not just this random thing that we get to live any way we want. That you realize one day you will have to give an account of your life before a holy judge. I urge you, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Because my heart's desire is that you will know him as Savior before you stand before him as judge. To know that you are created for a purpose. You're created to, to know him and live for him and lay your life before him. And when you do that, that's the very place that you find life. The very place that you find life. You know, there might be others of us here today, and I include myself in this, where we have these uh, religious scruples that hold us back. You know, by them we, we judge other people. We think because we don't do certain things, or we do do certain things that others don't do, that, that somehow we're just, that much better. You know, maybe these things that we don't actually verbalize, but they're in our hearts. Think, oh, I, I, don't, I don't associate with that type of person, or I, I do this thing that no other Christian does, therefore I'm slightly better. Let us lay those down at the cross. Let us unlearn some of those things along with Simon Peter. You know, we don't have to fall into a trance like Simon Peter to get this. We can pray and ask God, Lord, what are, what are the scruples that I need to learn to unlearn and lay at the cross? What are those things in my heart that I've put up a wall between people? Lord, I want to lay them down so that I have the privilege of leading others to you. How much wisdom do we need here? I want to tell you a story of a guy by the name of Dion Boerter. Now, by that surname, you can guess he's South African. And he was born in Pretoria. And the home that he grew up in was very much one where he was taught that you're white, you're special, you're better than everyone else. And he grew up with this pride thinking that really uh, we're special we're better than everyone else. But what pride does inside you is it causes you to hate others that are different to you. So not only did he grow up thinking, I'm super special, but he also grew up 
hating others that were different to him. But Dion met Jesus one day. And the wall came down. And he realized that at the foot of the cross, it's level. There is no distinction. And he laid his sin down at the foot of the cross. Dion then decided, I will live for the Lord. And this amazing thing happened in his heart. That Jesus gave him a love for the Chinese people in Taiwan. This man who had grown up thinking, my race is special. I'm better than everyone else. Suddenly, Jesus puts this love in his heart for a people so different to him. So him and his wife, Dawn, they get on a plane and they go to Taichung in China. And there, they become immersed in the culture. They learn the language. Dion would learn one Chinese proverb every day just so that he could relate to the Chinese people planted a church in Taiwan which is still thriving today ministering to Chinese people only Jesus can do that take a heart break down the wall and lead you in love I think the appropriate way for us to respond today is by reminding ourselves what is the God that we worship who is this God that we worship to reminding ourselves about the the facts of the gospel. So we're going to finish by saying the Apostles' Creed together. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Apostles' Creed, it is just a statement of belief that Christians have held. And in in that statement is the word, I believe in the Catholic Church. So just so that you're not confused, the word Catholic there means the true church of all times and all places. Will you stand with me? And let's say this together, and then we're going to worship our Savior. Let's read it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen.